0: I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. We are in a series discussing holiness and purity. And today will be a little different. It will sound a little more like a seminar or a workshop than a traditional or sermon proper. But I want to read this passage to orient our, our time this morning. Romans chapter 12. It comes after 11 chapters of of doctrine. Paul is describing the doctrine of salvation, man's sin before a holy God. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. There's an ongoing battle with sin, but there's the confidence of salvation. There's a confidence not just of individual salvation, but what we read about and what we read about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The world will be transformed when Christ returns. So in light of all that God has done and will do, Romans 11 ends with a praise to God. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then comes chapters 12 through 16, which are practical instruction. I think most of you are familiar with these verses. Romans 12, verses one and two. The Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Father, we want that to be true in our lives, and we're asking you to make that true now. We want to renew our minds by your truth, by the wisdom of your word, and we pray that you would work in our hearts so we would honor Christ, so we would leave here more committed to his glory, we pray you would unite us as a church in the mission you've given us and in the task of proclaiming Christ and in the privilege of exalting his name in our Life and in our communities and our families and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live in an age of big companies. We're used to that. Amazon, Walmart, Target, the list goes on. But that wasn't always the case. There were small local companies. Part of that change was happening in the late 1800s. And one particular industry that was doing that in the late 1800s was the baking industry. Bakeries began to realize that if they could join together and form a conglomerate, they could buy larger amounts of wheat at a lower price. So smaller bakeries began to merge and form larger institutions. And then those larger companies merged, and there came into existence at that time the largest baking conglomerate in the country— it was called the national biscuit company biscuit taken from more an english term which could mean anything baked today we know it as nabisco two of the men who were instrumental in forming what would eventually become nabisco were the loose brothers sadly they lost control of the company they helped build so they formed a new alliance and a new company and they called it the loose wiles biscuit company Eventually became called sunshine biscuits. Sunshine biscuits makes Cheez-Its, if that sounds familiar. Well, to rival what was going on in Nabisco, the Luce brothers wanted to create something their competitor didn't have. And they called it a sweet cake. Today we call them cookies. Cookies at the time were usually reserved for the wealthy. So the Luce brothers wanted to develop something that would be more affordable, and they wanted something that would set their product apart from all the other commercial desserts, which were predominantly made with only flour, sugar, and butter. After many attempts at a new item, they decided to try a new, uh, not a new ingredient, but an ingredient that was gaining popularity in the Americas at the time, and that was cocoa. So in 1908, they debuted a new product, Which was a mini sandwich consisting of two chocolate cookies around a vanilla filling. And they wanted to convey to the public the purity of the ingredients being used to make the cookies, so they named it after the two atoms in water hydrogen and oxygen. It was called hydrox, if that sounds familiar to any of you. It was stamped with the imprint of a flower, and in Latin, the flower is known as the Oreo Daphne flower. It began to grow in popularity, and as a result Nabisco saw its sales falling. In response Nabisco created a copycat cookie of its own and decided they could, do, they could put out a more appealing name. So in 1912, four years after the release of Hydrox, Nabisco released their own chocolate cookie with an imprinted flower on the front, and they chose to call it the Oreo Sandwich. Initially, Hydrox was the preferred brand in America. It came to the market first. It was known to have pure ingredients, but all that popularity changed in 1922 when Nabisco pushed a new ad campaign and they wanted to capitalize on the habit people had of twisting their cookie apart. And as history has proven, good marketing can make all the difference. Over the next few decades, Oreo began to grow in popularity, even though Hydrox was less expensive, Hydrox was the original, and unlike Oreo, Hydrox never used lard or hydrogenated oil or genetically modified ingredients or even high-fructose corn syrup. But Oreo was priced higher, and that began to give the people the impression that it was the higher quality product. And so a generation of Americans grew up thinking that Hydrox was a cheap imitation rather than the original and long story short oreo is now king of the cookies hydrox went out of business the cookie was actually restored in 2015 they still use pure ingredients but many stores no longer carry it there's even a feud about nabisco said we'll pull our cookies if you put hydrox i'm not saying that's true but there are allegations Hydrox sales have increased over the, you know, the past five, six, seven years, but they do not come close to the billions of dollars that Oreo brings in for Nabisco every year. Why am I telling you this? You can have an Oreo if you like it, no problem. But I think it's a good illustration of what we've seen in our own culture regarding romance and sexuality. Because God has created a pure, Original. He created it for joy and for delight and for the coming together of a man and his wife. But our culture has rejected the original and they have marketed to us an inferior imitation. We could say God's design has been hijacked. And so as a result, we have a culture that's given over to all kinds of immorality, and in our own lives, we face temptation continually. Today I want to help you, I want to help us as a church in our battle using the wisdom of scripture. The world is selling us an appealing but inferior product and so how do we equip ourselves to pursue purity? The LGBTQAI plus agenda is not going away anytime soon. Immorality and sexual allurement is rampant on TV Movies, music, social media. So how do we grow in holiness? How do we battle? How do we prepare the next generation? Like I said, this sermon, this morning is not really a traditional sermon. We're not going to focus on one passage. I want to give you 10 principles from scripture to help you and to help others in this battle. And I am going to be moving fairly quickly, tends a lot to cover. In the interest of time, we're not going to be turning to various passages, so I encourage you to have a pen and paper handy. If you'd like, jot down some references that I cite, and you can look them up later if it helps. Like I said last week, this isn't going to be something revolutionary, but it is a good reminder and a good just bringing these principles together specifically on this issue. I shared two of those keys with you last week. Let me review those briefly, and then we'll continue on our list. The first key we saw in the battle for purity is embrace the gospel. Embrace the gospel. That is a starting point for all of us. It's, we, we need to start by recognizing the truth that we sang about. We have a holy, perfect God. And then we need to recognize that we've fallen short of his standard. We are, before God, sinners who deserve eternal judgment. That judgment is because of what we think, because of what we say, because of what we do. All of us have, like Paul says, fallen short of the glory of God. But God, in His mercy, has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He died, He was raised on the third day. He was God's perfect sacrifice for sin. This is the gospel. Every single person who repents of their sin and trusts in the death and the resurrection of Jesus is forgiven, is cleansed, is reconciled to the Father, and also receives the spirit of Christ, which is the power to say no to sin. You are, in Christ, a new creation. You need to preach that to yourself every day. You don't need the gospel just on the day of salvation and then move past it. You need it every day. You need to remind yourself, apart from the grace of God, I'm a miserable sinner. I will fall into the deception. My flesh is weak. And at the same time, I need to remind myself of the grace of Christ. I need to remind myself that I am not who I used to be. I live a new life. We need to every day embrace the gospel. The second principle was elevate God's design. We need to elevate God's design. This was a reminder about valuing and promoting God's beautiful design for sexual pleasure and sexual intimacy which is for a man and his wife. In elevating the design we also need to remember that physical intimacy as as significant as it is is only one aspect of a marriage that honors God. So husbands, you need to remember, you need to work on your heart to change so that the measure of a man in your mind is not what culture tells you. The culture says this is what it looks like to be manly. We need to look to God and say, no, this is what it looks like. A true man is one who fears God, one who honors him, one who courageously protects and provides for his wife, one who leads her, one who loves her, Sacrificial—that's what Ephesians five says. Husbands, we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. We are to be a sanctifying work in her life. That's God's design. And we're also told in Scripture the truth that the beauty of a woman is not found in her measurements; it's found in her confidence in the Lord. It's found and it's seen in her submission, her respect, her purity. 1 Peter 3 says, a gentle and quiet spirit is precious to God. The word precious is not just emotionally precious, it's, it's valuable and we need to value it as well. We need to elevate God's design in our hearts so we can push back against the false imitations of the world. Well, with that review, we're gonna keep moving forward. Here's the third key in our battle for purity. Utilize your Connections Utilize your connections We need to take advantage of the people God has placed in our life God did not intend for you To go through life alone Or through this battle alone And that's the pull of culture You know, sexual desire the Sexual drive becomes isolating I don't talk to people I don't want to talk to anybody about this And except we go into the anonymity of the internet and then it blows up. That's not God's picture for the Christian life. We are members one of another. God has placed us, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, we're in the body of Christ. God has put you as a Christian in a spiritual family so we can serve and edify one another. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a brother is born for adversity. You need someone else. Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. When you fall down, someone's there to pick you up. Proverbs 18, verse one says, if you isolate yourself, you're fighting against sound judgment. That's foolishness. Don't do that. Don't go into battle alone. And the verse we've been using for the men's breakfast, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens Another. This is God's design for the Christian life. Titus 2, older women teach younger women. There are to be connections in the church. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of the Lord and it has a very, people talk about it and they talk about the personalness. I have this, I have my shield, I have my sword, I have my belt. But it also says that we, at the end of the armor of the Lord, we are to persevere in praying for one another. This is not a battle we go into alone. Hebrews 3, I've said it, multiple times, says, as long as it's called today, exhort one another. It's part of the value of gathering. We're not gathering just to hear a sermon or just to sing a song. We're gathering, whether it's upstairs or downstairs in the hallways on the way to your car, to encourage one another. If you feel the struggle of, uh, uh, for purity in your own mind or in your own heart or in some relationship, you need to tell someone that you trust in the Lord. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another. Sin, Jesus said, thrives in darkness. And so including the people, the connections that God has given you is a way of stepping into the light. 1 John chapter 1 says, walking in the light is a life of confession. You will progress in putting sin to death by including other people. Utilize the connections God has given you. Now principle number four, build your arsenal. Build your arsenal. Arsenal is your, your, your weapons, your ability to fight. When Paul talks about spiritual armor, he gives one offensive weapon. What is that? The sword of the spirit, which he says is the word of God. This, the word of God, which you have in your hands, which we have in our hearts, is the primary weapon in our battle against sin. And using the sword analogy, what good is a sword if it's rusty and sitting in the back corner of your closet or the back corner of your garage covered by everything else? When I say build your arsenal, I mean you need to pour Scripture meaningfully into your life. You need to have it accessible. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then you know this too. Verse 11. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Store up. The idea there is accumulating, treasuring, protecting, guarding. uh, uh, I think some translations say treasured. You're, You're putting it away, not because it's not important. You're storing up so that when you need it, you can use it. It's like amassing a collection of something. So, practically, that means you read Scripture, you memorize Scripture, you meditate on Scripture. These don't have to be long verses. There are big, heavy swords and there are short daggers. You need dagger verses as well. But find verses that specifically address the issue you're dealing with. Satan came to Jesus to tempt him. What was his response? It is written. It is written. It is written. So find verses that you know will help you. Put them before you. Put them on a three by five card. Put them in your phone. Do whatever you need to keep bringing in God's word so that these truths are there to help you fight. If you need ideas, you can go back and listen to the sermons we've done on holiness. You can look at the words of the father of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter five, Proverbs chapter six, Proverbs chapter seven. Rather than fill your mind with the false and alluring messages of the world, fill it with the truth of God's word. Until the day that we see Jesus, we're going to battle against a sinful heart. But it's the pure truth of God's word that dilutes the poison of sin. Turning to God's word, storing God's word in our heart, inclines our heart to God's design. So someone who is complaining about sexual sin, complaining about sexual temptation, they're upset that they're not making progress, but they aren't feeding on God's word is like the person whining about being hungry in the kitchen and they don't want to make themselves a sandwich. 1 Peter says, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. It's all here. And the spirit of God teaches us and illuminates us so we can have it ready. Ready? God has in his mercy given us his powerful truth and we can access it any whether it's a physical Bible, whether it's on your phone or whatever's stored in your heart. Men and women have died in generations past to give us a copy of the scriptures in our own language. And we don't treasure it like we should. So read the Bible, memorize the Bible, meditate on the Bible. That's how you build your arsenal in the battle for purity. That's four principles so far. Embrace the gospel, elevate God's design, utilize the connections or your connections and build your arsenal. Now, number five, very, very simple, obvious. Flee your temptations. Flee your temptations. This is so obvious, this is so straightforward. The problem is our sinful, lustful heart doesn't like to run away from temptations. You go to a party, it's winter, no one's getting in the pool, so you tell your kids, don't get in the pool. And where do they sit? Right next to the pool. I just wanted to see how cold it was. We prefer, many times, to flirt with sin. We wanna see how close we can get to the fire. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful passions. Run the other direction. He told the Romans, make no provision for the flesh. Speaking of the possibility of adultery, Proverbs 6 has the father saying to his son, Son, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. It's a big big industry right now, eyelashes. I think someone in the Spanish service said, it looks like they took the eyelashes off a cow and put it on their own eye because they're that big, you know. Her eyelashes got there at 8 o'clock. The rest of her got there at 8.02. Is the dad saying to his son, don't even look at her? Yes, he is. Not because beauty is wrong, but because in the context, he's speaking of an adulterous woman who's seeking to seduce him. Don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. Once you look, she's going to hook you. So this dad might say to his son, you need to be like Joseph did. You need to do what he did with Potiphar's wife. You run as fast as you can. And to make the point about the danger even more clear, he continues with some rhetorical questions. Proverbs 6, can a man carry fire next to his chest? That's speaking of like a burning log, which is on fire. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? The answer is no. You can't get that close and not get hurt. We know the expression, play with fire and you're gonna get burned. That's true for adultery, that's true for any other example of sexual immorality, whether it's physical immorality, whether it's a temptation in something digital, your phone, your computer. It could be something overt, it could be something that the rest of the world says, no, that's just, it's just innocent, it's just fun, it's just playful. The wisdom of God says whatever it is that leads you to sin, you run in the other direction. We're not running from beauty. The Bible speaks of beauty. The Bible, I think it was Rebecca or Sarah. Beautiful of face, beautiful of form. But we run away from anything that would tempt us. We run from the things that would feed or arouse or foster sinful desires in our heart. In Proverbs chapter 7, the father continues talking to his son about this, and he describes a foolish man who goes out alone at night walking by the house of the seductress. Well, I wasn't planning to spend the night with her. I just, you know, was taking a nightly stroll, and she happened to be home. That was his first mistake. Find another path. He didn't stay away. So, you need to think about that in your own life when it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to sexual temptation. What are the most dangerous places, times, and people for you? What am I putting in my mind that is creating these desires, whether it's a movie or a soap opera or a song? What are the apps on my phone that I have to be careful with or stay away from altogether? If you're in a dating relationship, what are the limits I need to place on this relationship to make sure we're not drifting into danger? You need to think about that specifically. What are the times? What are the places? This is not about legalistically thinking this is going to save you, it's about honoring Christ and fleeing. What if someone told you they were trying out Atkins? They're going to do a no carb diet. But every morning they like to walk through the bakery and just smell everything. (laughs) You don't do that. You would say, "What what are you doing? If you have a problem with you're susceptible to gambling, you're not gonna go walk, you shouldn't be walking through the casino with all the lights and the sounds. It's the same way with lust. Colossians 3 says, in obedience to Christ, we need to put immorality to death. The old term is mortify your sin, kill it. If sin is a snake, you don't bring it in as a pet. You don't even put it in a cage. You chop off its head and you throw it away. And if that sounds extreme, it should because that's the exact message Jesus gave his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, he's specifically talking about fighting immorality in your heart and your body. And speaking metaphorically, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that you lose than that your whole body be thrown into hell this can lead me astray He continues, if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And again, he's speaking metaphorically, but he's making a point about how extreme this battle needs to be. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In other words, get as far away as you can from whatever leads you to sexual sin. The world may think you've lost your mind. The world may call you a fanatic but your battle against sin, your fleeing from temptation needs to be that extreme. That's what Jesus said. Rip out of your life whatever is leading you to continue falling into sin. In 1 Corinthians 7, he was speaking of the, the couple, younger couples. He says they're burning with passion. And Paul says, you want to flee temptation? Get married. It's part of the way you, you flee temptation. If you wanna get serious about this in your own life, especially much more practical, find someone you trust. Find an older brother, find an older sister in the faith and ask them, how did you do it? What did you do when you were my age to flee temptation? What are you doing now? Look at my life, what can I do? And then you'll have some serious conversations about what it looks like to flee your temptations. Now as serious as it is, There's still more that we have to do. And this leads us to the sixth key for fighting for purity. Principle number six is this. Address your heart. Address your heart. Fleeing temptation is primarily an an external thing. I'm going to separate myself from that which leads me to sin. But we're called to also work on the inside. Proverbs 4.23 says... Keep your heart, protect, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The invisible you, the center of who you are, the Bible calls that your heart. And that's where the battle begins. Even if you weren't looking for sin externally, I'm not trying to sin, sin will come and your heart is incited toward temptation. That's the language of James 1. The temptation happens because your heart says, ooh, I like that. Even if the external opportunity to sin were to disappear, the battle's not over because our heart, our sinful heart wants to sin. That's what it is to live in the flesh. Many times we might say we don't want to sin sexually, but we have to admit we desire lust. Lust. We want to sin, even if it's only at the level of our minds. So addressing your heart, addressing your mind, means you have to step back and you need to think about some of the deeper desires that fuel your lust. It could be laziness because sex is a shortcut. I don't want to do the the proper steps and all the work that God has said is designed for me as a husband to love my wife. I want to just pursue it the cheap way. It could be laziness. It could be a desire for attention, to allure others, to gain their approval. It could be a desire, a simple desire for pleasure or for comfort. It could be a desire to control others through this. It could even be a legalistic view of salvation, a trade-off with God. I've been good for this long, so I'm due. In Ephesians 5, we talked about this before Thanksgiving, Paul contrasts sexual immorality with giving thanks. He does that because he's aiming at the heart, not just the actions. Sexual sin flows from ingratitude. Sexual sin comes out of a heart of entitlement. It's okay for me to do this. We need to understand, especially younger ones, need to understand that there's a lot more going on than just hormones. You're not just a physical body. You have an invisible heart that's actively creating desires. Addressing the heart is not easy. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. Proverbs says the heart of a man is like a deep well it takes wisdom to try to draw that out but if you're including someone else in this battle they might be able to help you explore some possibilities behind your sin and more importantly they can help you battle with sexual sin at, at, at a deeper level not just you need the external but the deeper level that's the heart for example, if someone is giving into to sexual temptation because they want to be accepted by their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their peers, what they also need to fight against is fear of man. They need to teach their heart that in Christ, God has accepted them. And it's his approval that matters more than anybody else. If it's out of a desire for comfort or pleasure, we need to train our hearts to say, this is where I find my rest, not in sin. If you're giving in to sin because you feel guilty, well, I've already done this, I might as well do this. You need to remember the forgiveness and the cleansing that we have in Christ. There are a lot more examples that we can give, but the main point is you need to recognize that the battle is much deeper than the external. There are other desires that fuel our lusts, and we should work to find out what those are and move toward a change at the level of our heart. In the long run, we want hearts that hate what God hates and love what God loves. So we need to learn to awaken our hearts to true love for God. How do you do that? If I don't like Brussels sprouts, how do I train myself to like Brussels sprouts? How do I change my heart? Well, I, I didn't give prayer a specific point, but I've been mentioned it with connections, and I'm going to mention it here now, because... It fits in nicely with the idea that ultimately you cannot change your heart. I can't just will myself to love more what God loves and and hate sin to the degree that he hates it. We should pray for strength to flee temptation. That's the end of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation. But we also need to depend on God in prayer, asking that he would work in our hearts by his word, by his spirit, through the the church, my brothers and sisters. Help me hate what you hate, God, and help me love what you love. That level of change at the heart requires God to move. And he'll do it. To the degree that we are cooperating with and committing to the, the other principles we're mentioning. That's what the Philippians 2 says. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But God is the one working in you so that you would desire and so you would obey his will. That's part of sanctification. You learn to reject the things you used to accept. And you learn to pursue the things that you used to um, mock. You need to address your heart. Principle number seven, confront the deception. Confront the deception. Jesus said to follow him is to deny yourself. When my daughter gets to a certain age, there may come a time where she is approached by a young man whom she doesn't want to be approached by. In those moments, my hope is that she would learn to confront and to deny. Confronting or denying is different than ignoring. You can be at a restaurant and someone annoying next to you or at the, in line at the DMV or at home or at work, they can annoy you. And if you ignore them and do nothing, they might continue. But confronting is to turn to them. Denying is to turn to them, look them in the eye, recognize that what they're doing, and they know that you know. And you say, no, stop it. That's denial. That's confrontation. Denying yourself, like Jesus said, means learning to say no to yourself. Just because you weren't looking for sin and just because something feels like it's just an automatic impulse doesn't mean that sin is not involved. Our sinful hearts are waiting to be allured, and so we need to act. John Piper, writing on the battle for sexual purity said this, quote, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds and say it with the authority of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, no. You don't have much more than five seconds. Give it more unopposed time than that and it will lodge itself with such force as to be almost immovable. Say it out loud if you dare. Be tough and warlike. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Strike fast and strike hard. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. End quote. Satan came in the form of a servant to Adam and Eve. And their major mistake, the first mistake, was to engage him in a continued conversation. The moment Satan came questioning the goodness and the kindness and the wisdom of God, Adam, as the man, was supposed to step in and say, that's it. This conversation's done. But he didn't. And neither did Eve. They let the conversation continue and were pulled into the deception And we do the same thing so many times. We let our sinful desires continue without confronting it, stopping it right there and exposing it for what it is. You watch a TV show or a movie with a bad guy who's conniving and lying. I mean, an open bad guy. And you watch it and sometimes there's a frustration because you realize, why are they listening to him? This is a bad guy. How is he getting away with these lies? That's the kind of attitude we need to have with our own sinful hearts and sexual temptation. We need to be able to say, no, it's a scam, it's a lie. Ephesians 4 says they're deceitful desires which corrupt. We need to call it out. In Hebrews 11, giving us examples of faith that says, Moses chose to obey God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the Bible recognizes that sin is attractive. Sin is pleasurable. But it tells us and it reminds us that it's fleeting. So when the flesh says, do it, look at that girl, look at that photo, watch that video, click that link, take that relationship one step further, it'll be good, it's going to feel better. You have to be ready to say, no, I'm not going to do that. The pleasure will only be temporary, and then will come the conviction and the discipline of God. This will only hurt me in the end. You have to expose the lie, you have to confront the deception. Principle number eight look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The first principle was about the gospel, and we talked about Jesus maybe in a more generic way, but what I mean here is is making it personal. Colossians 3 says, put your eyes on the things that are above, where Christ is. You need to make it personal. Think of a man who is cheating on his wife. He would never take his wife and his kids to go with him at a meeting with the adulteress because of his relationship with them. That relationship changes his behavior In the same way, we need to have a deepening relationship with Christ. We need to love him and focus on him so that he matters more to us than any sin. Remember, Potiphar's wife, she didn't come to Joseph once. It was a repeated thing. The final time when he ran away, it's because there was no one in the house, and she grabbed him. But as she came to him, Genesis says, this is his response. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He didn't mention Potiphar, he didn't mention the rest of Egypt, he didn't mention the household or the other slaves, he said he didn't mention her. How can I do this and sin against God? That's the relationship we're supposed to have with Jesus Christ. One author said it like this, quote, The ultimate power to kill lust lies in the person of Christ himself holding sway in our hearts. When we wander into sin, we always wander away from a person. That person is firstly Christ. So we must work to see his power and beauty, wisdom, righteousness, and grace. So that he becomes more compelling to us than sin or anything else. We do not want to cut out lust without filling the void with Christ. End quote. It's not enough to just say no to sin. It's not enough to simply put off the old. Paul says, put on Christ. And how do you cultivate in your heart a love for Christ? Well, you read about him in the Gospels. You focus on him, whether it's the Old or the New Testament. You point everything to Christ. You read and you pray and you meditate but you don't do it in a way that's just about religious and being a good person. You focus on Christ. The book of Hebrews says we need to look to Jesus. He endured temptation. He endured the cross and he by his resurrection has guaranteed our victory. We need to, as Hebrews says, consider Jesus. Hebrews 4 says he will give us mercy and grace in our hour of need if we draw near to him. Christ is with you. Christ was tempted just like you are in every way. Remember that he's with you. 1 John 3 says, as we place our hope in seeing Jesus one day, we purify ourselves just like Jesus is pure. So not ignoring all the external things we can do, we have to never forget to look to Jesus in the battle for holiness two more points I won't spend too much time but really practical reminders number nine do something productive do something productive uh, John Piper just calls it move in other words get to work you don't just sit around waiting for lust to go away put the energy God gave you to use I'm assuming most of you are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba and most people start the story with David on the roof but that's not where the story starts The story is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me read to you the opening two verses. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So we get that last part, but where was David? He was at home in Jerusalem. He should have been out at war with the troops. Instead, he's at home. And before he decides to go for a stroll on his roof, where was he? On his couch. Late one afternoon, he got up from his bed couch. David is lounging around being lazy. And that's how this all started. Again, let me quote from John Piper on this topic. He says, "Move, move into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors." Lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. Find a good work to do and do it with all your might. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Romans 12:11. Get up and do something. Sweep a room, hammer a nail, write a letter, fix a faucet, and do it for Jesus' sake. You were made to manage and create. Christ died to make you zealous for good works. Displace deceitful lusts with a passion for good deeds. That's why the um, saying exists about idle hands. You need to find ways to be productive. You need to find ways to serve others. That's going to help you battle sin. Do something productive. Lastly, final key in the battle for purity: persevere in battle. Persevere in battle. Just because I gave you ten keys to battle lust doesn't mean it boils down to ten tips. Say, no one's supposed to come back this and we can say, Pastor, I did all ten things. I'm done. Like the battle with lust is over. I did it. Like a, like, a, like, a, like a cabinet from Ikea. I followed all the steps and I'm done. That's not how it works. God's given us his wisdom. God's given us his spirit so we would make progress in our faith, so we would be sanctified. But that journey is not going to end this side of heaven. Paul reminded the Corinthians about the resurrection of Christ. He pointed them forward to the final resurrection when death would be destroyed. And he says this. 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, so, so because of the victory, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Get to work do something productive. Our victory in Christ is guaranteed, but every day is still going to be a battle. John Piper also refers to this as the hold principle. He says, I tried forcing sin out of my mind, and it keeps coming back. He says, you got to keep doing it. He said, uh, uh, the analogy he gives is a, an electric garage door falling on your child, about to crush him. What are you going to do? You're going to hold it, and you're going to call for help, and then you're going to hold it, and you're going to hold it, and you're going to hold it. You need to learn to persevere. We need to learn to keep going. This is not a sprint. Hebrews 12 says we're in a race. It's a marathon. And in the race, we recognize that we're going to fall. We're gonna fail our Lord and our Savior. That's part of what it is to live in a sinful body. That's the frustration of Paul in Romans 7. But by the gospel of Christ, we confess our sin, we turn from our sin, and we get back in the battle for the glory of Christ. Here's what Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, when the time comes, we will reap if we do not give up. We need to, Hebrews says, run with endurance. We need to persevere in the battle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such simple but profound reminders, and we pray you would allow our church and and all who will belong to you around the world shine as lights in a dark world chasing its own deception. We pray you would strengthen our marriages. We pray you would equip us to teach our young ones. We pray you would protect our our younger ones in their own relationships, and their own choices. We don't want to do this so we can pat ourselves on the back for how holy we are When to do this so that we would better reflect the holiness of Christ. Give us humility so we would continue to confess our sinfulness, our foolishness. But we pray through our own holiness, many would come to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. We pray you would equip the next generation to stand for your beautiful, perfect design even when the world says they've gone crazy. Help us be critical about our relationships, about our friendships. Help us be discerning about what we bring into our mind through what we read, what we listen to, what we watch. Father, we are so, all of us are humbled before you as we consider this battle. But we thank you for the growth that we've seen in our life and we pray you would use us to sharpen others and to equip the next generation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.